Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you enjoy this podcast series, will you do a little AA service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? It's another helping hand of AA we can extend to alcoholics everywhere. On today's show, my guest, Joni M., shares a story full of similarities with which many alcoholics will readily identify. Her early drinking at age 14 escalated throughout her high school and college years, It rapidly became an indispensable part of her life during her first marriage. As a young mother of two, Joni's budding alcoholism became entwined with her home and social lives and caused mounting problems in both areas. Fortunate to have a husband who took over the parental roles that Joni was increasingly oblivious to, her daily drinking inevitably led to divorce. And, of course, divorce led to more drinking and irresponsibility. As her life became more isolated and miserable, Joni tried to stop drinking many times. At first, she tried using psychotherapy and multiple treatment centers, only to start drinking again. With few options left and self-loathing becoming a greater part of her existence, Joni found AA as a last resort. After some fits and starts, she finally caught the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous over six years ago and has been sober since. Joni's journey in sobriety started with lots of meetings and working the 12 steps under tutelage of some great sponsors. Her success has grown into sponsorship of other women and reliably fulfilling service commitments, including involvement in local nonprofits dealing with alcoholism and drug addiction. She continues to occupy her hard-earned position in the spiritual center of the program and demonstrates daily the gifts AA offers to all who seek it. I believe Joni's story is important to hear for newcomers, old-timers, and folks in between. So get comfortable to listen for the next hour to this week's episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA sister, Joni M. Hi, I'm Joni. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Joni. That's what I say back in return. I like that. (laughs) Welcome to the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're able to be here today. What's great about sitting down with you right now is that you and I just came out of a really strong meeting. It's one of the better meetings that I've been going to for years and years. I know you've gone to over the years as well. And it was a really good subject matter about getting roots in AA. For sure. You've got roots that go back a while. How long have you been sober? Almost seven years. But I, I came into the rooms about 12 years ago. And then actually my first AA meeting was my senior year in high school. But it, it didn't take uh, kind of an assignment after they found some alcohol in the back of my Jeep. So, <laughs> so they thought that one meeting would do it for you? Uh, <laughs> I think, I don't know what they thought about that. I'll tell you what, it, it started planting seeds at a much earlier age because I did listen while I was in those meetings, although I didn't relate because they were mostly men and who were drug users and I, because I was... Oh, I thought if I just, you know, drank alcohol, I'd be fine. I thought if I stayed away from drugs, I wouldn't end up homeless. I wouldn't, you know, end up under under a bridge. And um, and I thought that that was the ticket to avoiding all problems is just stick with to just stick with alcohol. But so later, fast forward, when I walked into my second AA meeting, 
I just heard I heard more similarities than than I could ever imagine. You know, sometimes seeds lay dormant for a period of time until they reemerge. You said twelve years ago it that was the case for you. Yes, I had a, a lot of bottoms and around two thousand eleven, and um, just mm-hmm. hated uh, my consequences for my drinking. Mm-hmm. I hated the way I was feeling. I hated the sort of mother I was, and um, and I had known people that were sober, so I thought. Well, wow, you know, I, I want that too. And if I just go to one meeting, I'll instantly quit drinking. And then, <laughs> and then that will be it. So when I went to that one meeting, I kind of had a true confessional in front of all those wonderful people. And then I walked out of that e- meeting and went, you know, uh, went a few day, more days without drinking. And then I went right back to it. Never. It, and then it took me another couple years to come back in and, and try harder. Yeah, so, so you came back. Uh, what's your sobriety date? Uh, September 24th, 2016. Okay, so you're coming up on seven years? That's right. In September? In September. Wow, that is so cool. Thank you. <laughs> you know, one of my fantasies when I first came in, there was a guy who came to the meeting that I was in, a men's meeting, about a year, year and a half into my sobriety. And this guy would come back. He was known for being only going to one meeting a year, and that was on his birthday. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, I can hardly wait until that's me, until I only have to go to one meeting mm-hmm. a year in AA. <laughs> and boy, if I had followed through with that frame of mind, I would have missed so much over the years. It's been a rich experience. I agree. I absolutely agree. And it's almost as if the more I do and the more I get in the middle, the happier I am, Whether mm-hmm. because when I help people, I'm happier. When I'm listening, when I, I slow down and I calm down in those meetings, and I just I believe in it so much. I'm, I really do. So if I can feel when I haven't been going to a meeting almost, um, I'm just irritable, restless, and discontent in some ways. And I enjoy it. I think of it now like the way I think about exercise or, or going to church. For me, it's sometimes it takes me a little bit to get up and go, but mm-hmm. once I go, I'm so glad I did it, and I'm so proud, and I'm a happier person and more bring more joy and you know and I'm giving it back like so many people helped me get sober mm-hmm. I mean I had lots of sponsors and and um, you know people that I would answer my phone calls and and meet me at meetings and things and rehabs and all everybody I mean doctors and now I just feel gosh that was such a blessing you know I wasn't always doing everything I kind of sometimes that's why I kept relapsing because I would kind of do what I wanted and leave the rest, you know, I wouldn't like follow instructions always. But when I finally surrendered and started listening to every and doing what they told me, how, how they got sober, then it started working for me too. And now I, I want to give it back and um, pay it forward. But also I want to keep my sobriety. I don't want to ever go back to the way I was. Don't want to reset your sobriety date. No, I did that too many times already. <laughs> what was your uh, your family of origin like when it came to alcohol and drug use? I have alcoholism all over my family, except, I mean, my grandmother passed away of it, and I had one aunt in recovery, one in Al-Anon, another aunt who just got sober off um, pills on her own, and um, and it was on both sides, but I was um, the last of six. It was his, hers, and I was the ours, and so I, and they're all ranging 16 years, and so I basically grew up with two parents and me. Everybody else was off at school or grown, so I was kind of like an only child with all these siblings who were much older. But my parents drank socially. They they had fun at parties, but mm-hmm. um, and the occasional like you know 
mishap, but nothing really. My parents were very loving and worked really hard, and um, and my dad doesn't have a problem, and I think they both had a good time, like I said, but it, I, they didn't drink at home. I mean, but it was the isms, I guess, were around, and the, but at 14, I had my first beer, and um, I just knew I, I was I was home, and then I was allowed to go have one at Mardi Gras, and then I snuck back to the trough to get mm. another beer, and I ended up getting destroyed and the room spinning and all that. But I knew, I was like, that was the most fun thing I have ever done, ever. <laughs> and so I couldn't wait to introduce it to my friends, to yeah. find it every which way. And I, I binged from 14 up until I got sober. I never, some of these people I hear in AA, they're, they say, oh, you know, we try to control it with one or two and maybe would be successful. I could not even do that. I mean, 14 is usually a very common age for people to take their first drink or start mm -hmm. drinking. So 14 until you tried stopping, you would drink in a binge worthy fashion. For sure. So you weren't drunk all the time, but when you drank, you would binge. Did you black out every time you drank? Not every time. No, I guess um, if starting at 14, my blackouts didn't start happening and they were more like brownouts maybe in college. But after college is when I started blacking out more and more, and that was very scary. Yeah, I can imagine. I wanted to revisit something you said earlier about your grandmother passing away from alcoholism. Mm -hmm. How old were you when she passed away? I actually never met her. So I just um, had heard stories from my dad, and my dad even told me my senior in high school, he said, you better watch out, this disease runs in our family. It was in me to think, you know, am I going to have this problem? Just like that meeting, like, should I look at this? And maybe that's why when I'm in my late 20s that I was able to try to do something about it where, you know, I didn't let more decades go by because I was like, I was alerted to the fact that I could have this problem. One of the interesting things about knowing that someone in the family has passed away mm -hmm. or their demise was alcoholism or drug addiction mm -hmm. There's almost a, a perverse sense of entitlement, knowing that somebody died in the family from it. We think that we can beat it, and I will be the one that proves that part of the family wrong. They had to die from it. I can do it and not die from it. And I've seen that happen. I've seen that where, where people, they were so resigned to the fact that because alcoholism ran in their family, that they had no other choice than to become an alcoholic. And you and I both know alcoholic behavior is a matter of choice to a large degree. We choose to drink or we don't. And then the disease steps in and says, I'm taking that choice away from you, and now you're going to drink and be controlled by the disease. How did you find that in your life? I guess I, uh, because I never met that particular grandmother. I mean, like I said, I was, I, I knew that I needed to be careful, but when, but you never think it's going to be you. I never thought that I would end up alcoholic. And I did, like you said, I tried different ways to conquer this on my own. And, um, and I watched my friends and my, um, I mean, I look back at a party now. I had a girlfriend. I'm like, um, how do I not get so drunk? And she was like, well, try sipping and, or, uh, try <laughs> doing this, that. And so I would try all these ways. And ultimately I would you know, be more destroyed. For some reason, I was the first person at the party and the last person to go to bed. Like, I just, I mean, it, it was very destructive for me. And I mean, and, and so it was fun, but for so long until it wasn't. And then it was like the consequences started in. For a lot of people, they start early too, you know. Drinking at 14, 13 or 14 is usually the culmination of stuff that comes before that. And when we're children, we find ways to cope. As we get older, we find other ways to cope. And then we find alcohol or drugs. Yeah. What kind of things led you up to deciding that you wanted to try alcohol and drugs? It looks to me that people who drank alcohol 
it was pretty normal in my family to people, I mean, still to this day for people to have fun um, while drinking and dance and be silly and a laugh. And, um, but I, I just thought that's what older people do. And that looks pretty glamorous. I want to do it. But, it, but now that I'm in recovery, I look back and I was, I was, you know, the last of six, I, there was, um, some drama and dysfunction. And I, I felt like I, I still feel this role of trying to, you know, um, be the mediator and everybody just love one another and get along. And, um, and I had my own insecurities and, um, and then I also went through some eating disorder stuff. I, I think I, I tried it to do what I thought was glamorous, but when it went down, Mm -hmm. I felt, wow, this really makes me feel good. Like I, I have confidence and, you know, I feel like funny and beautiful and fun. And, um, and so I guess all those insecurities, I, I didn't realize that that was going to (laughs) fix those temporarily. And so, um, and so that's why I wanted to stick with it. But I mean, I even remember getting candies at the movies and, um, or my parents would buy me a big thing, bag of Jolly Ranchers. I'd eat the whole thing in one sitting. I'm still like that to this day, like big extremes. I mean, if I'm going to, you know, I, I worked my ass off, like, and I always made straight days. If I was going to go jogging, I was going to run X amount. And I wasn't, you know, it was going to be six miles, not, not 5.99. Like I had to get like things like that, if that makes sense. Like I just, um, I work hard, play hard, I guess. Was there an internal judge kind of spurring you on? Oh, yeah. What was it saying to you? I'm not enough. You're not enough. So you got to prove it? Yeah. And how do you prove it? Well, I didn't really have to prove it. I felt like with alcohol because the substance just numbed me out. And I loved that escape. And I thought it was just, I don't know. I think I just wanted to escape responsibilities and just numb out and from all feelings and, and just have fun. I thought life was one big party. That's what I wanted it to be. But yeah, but during the week I had to clean up. And I guess I was trying to uh, make everything look good on the outside so I could do whatever I wanted on the weekends. And, and then yeah, it, the yeah. weekends became weekdays and... Days, <laughs> I get that. So, so fourteen is an age at which you're usually in middle school, getting ready to mm-hmm. go into high school. When you started at fourteen, was it on a regular basis, or was it just periodic until you got further on in school? It was periodic because I, I just couldn't get my hands on it. And then I went, went off to boarding school, and um, mm-hmm. and for for high school, and and we would sneak it on the weekends. We would we would go off in a taxi from boarding and, and get a home, pay a homeless person to buy, buy some, some for him, some for us. And, and, but the, we, we worked so hard at school. We just didn't really have access to it. And, um, and then I convinced my parents that it would be a good idea if I had a roommate whose mom was single to, to live in Houston in an apartment, share an apartment. And while her mom was away working, my mom would come in from Galveston. And when her mom was home, she'd go back to my dad. And so we had this kind of boarding arrangement in Houston. So I went to high school one semester, jumped high schools, And then we had our, my own condo. A family owned it. And, um, and so I was basically unchaperoned a lot. So I lived a lot of my high school life without parents at boarding school. And then, or, you know, parents shuffling around, not really knowing what we were up to. And then they, they were around enough, but I was so out of control and unsupervised. How did you feel about that? Feel about your parents sending you off to boarding school? 
I always knew I was going because my two older sisters went, so it wasn't like I was a problem child. And in fact, my dad was said, you know, still says to this day, "You were just easy, Joni." And so, um, but that was really they sent me off to have more opportunity. I thought that was what they had both gone off to school to, and I wasn't messing too much with that opportunity. It's only when I saw kids starting to drive a car, and I thought, and you know, I did want a party. I thought you know, just get, uh, bring me home. Like, I don't want to do this hard work anymore. I want to go do what other kids, what I thought they were doing, driving, partying. I thought that that, that was where the life was. So. so there wasn't as much of that going on in the boarding school environment as you perceived there would be in the public school environment. There was, but there were um, restrictions. Uh-huh. And, and I was having some friends get kicked out, and I thought, my parents aren't as strict as this. Did you ever get in trouble? I guess... My biggest amount of trouble I got was the time I got sent to AA my senior year. I was on a homecoming court. That's when they found my friend's alcohol in the back of my car. and they. But they didn't find you drunk. Or um, they, they didn't. They sent me to AA, so I, I imagine that they knew, but they didn't. I didn't have anything on me. Um, and then my senior year in high school, I was riding with a friend, and um, we both got arrested on Easter Sunday. And then also at high school, called my parents, and they said, she has missed so much school we may not be able to graduate, let her graduate. And I thought, um, but they said they let me walk because I had straight A's. They couldn't. But that was all <laughs> because I would call in sick. I was hungover in high school. Shoot, I just I wonder how, who's going to be listening to this. <laughs> What's interesting about that is that that starts you off early with the belief that you can function while drinking and that if you can function while drinking, you must not be an alcoholic. I mean, that that follows a lot of people into their college and into their work careers where if they don't get into trouble or they get into trouble and they get let off the hook because they've done such a good job with grades or with a project at work, then that must mean that they really don't have a problem. Yeah. How did you judge your your performance? Just didn't think it was that big of a deal. I kind of thought it was funny. I was like, this happens to everybody. But um, but in retrospect, I think about the feelings, jumping high schools and trying to find friends and new environment, new environments, new cities. Um, alcohol was what I thought brought me friends, but then it mm. left me so empty. Like some of those days when I was hungover or having to, you know, after even the night of the big after the big party, I thought, are these my true friends? Like, yeah, it was just we were all. Mm. Um, a, a mess. You know, I just, I felt a lot of the insecurities already coming up because alcohol, what it did for me, yes, it was great when I was drinking, but when the next day I would get like such bad anxiety and, um, and I just, I hated it, you know, just because I worked hard. I was like, well, I'll, I'll get through this. And, you know, some of those things don't mean I wasn't ready to quit. It was still enough fun for me to keep going. Yeah. And a lot of times it is about fun and about keeping going and fitting in. And fitting in, yeah. When, when you look back at that time in your life from what you know now, is there a point at which you could have looked at your life on a, at a certain time and said, that's, when I, that's probably when I first was becoming an alcoholic, or that's probably when my first alcoholic-type behavior occurred? I would say 16. I had a breakup with a boy, and, um, and I think that really was painful for me. And... Um, mm. And I, I feel those feelings, I, was, I started to drink to cope. And it was like mm. every day during the summer, I remember. And, um, and I, I just would have told my younger self, like, you know, been, um, my parents are amazing people. But if I had somebody who could have 
intervened a little earlier on my behavior. I needed that. I, I needed that uh, some mm. discipline because I, I mm. felt like it, I left to my own devices and I was, I was a kid. My brain wasn't even fully formed. And I, you know, I thought it was all about fun and I respected my parents and, and cared enough what they thought and everybody else to try to still do well. But it's just, I feel sorry for my little self. <laughs> I needed more direction. For but you made it through high school and you graduated. What, what came next? I got into UT. I went four years at UT. What was that experience like with regard to drinking? I drank every night and it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I look back now and I, I wonder why I wasted my education. I feel like I wish I would have, you know, been more studious. And, but anyway, it, it, everybody was binge drinking and I took it to, you know, the highest level I could. And I remember there was a professor that called my mom at 8 a.m., which is interesting because I was 19 years old. You, I didn't know they still did that at the university, but she called my mom and she said, I'm, I have your daughter in my 8 a.m. class and she has smelled like alcohol more than once. And my mom told me about it and just, you know, cringe. But, um, but still, it wasn't enough to, it was because I was staying up till 5 a.m. and I had 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock class. I would try to condense all my, um, all my classes to two or th to three days of the week or two or three days so I could have those other days off. Anyway, I had strategies all over the place, like most alcoholics, to yeah. try to keep up their lifestyle, right? Yeah, I used <laughs> to do that too. You know, get the, get the classes out of the way. So, But I always plan them for the afternoon because I want yeah. to be able to sleep in in the morning, sleep off whatever happened for the sure. night before. Now, when, when your folks uh, became aware of some of these things that were going on, did you face any consequences from them or, or were they doing anything to try and curb what you were doing? Did they sit you down and lecture you? Did they ground you? What, what kind of response did they have? Nothing was alarming. My behavior, you know, it wasn't like anything. My dad told me once, oh, you'll grow out of this wild partying. And, and so um, and after I graduated UT, I hadn't really grown out of it, but still nothing had really happened yet besides that arrest, I guess, that worried them. And even then they thought maybe that was just, you know, one of those things, wrong place, wrong time. I, I got finished UT in four years. That was my only option. So that's what I did. How were your grades? I got three, one, I think. That's still pretty good for somebody Thank drinking you. every every day. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I just. Well, you're naturally smart. Then, let's no, say. I don't know. I just work really hard. I think. Okay. Well, that, that'll do it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I, I had my college boyfriend, he was the one that got away, I thought, and we had broken up and I, I had no direction. I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And so I asked my dad, like, dad, I'm graduating. And he said, you ought to go to law school. And I thought, I don't, okay, like, okay, I'll just do that. And so um, I applied, I got in, and within a couple months, I, I quit because I thought all these people are so smart. I felt like legally blonde, mm, and, yeah. um, and I quit. And, I, um, and my drinking progressed during that period because I, I went to work for a law firm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but I was drinking every night. I was a recruiter. Mm -hmm. So a recruiter planned the events and recruit the lawyers. And I, that was a job I thought I was really good at. But I was making name tags, and I felt, you know, I thought I was good at the social, but then I started showing up late to work, and um, I went to a psychiatrist, and I thought, I'm depressed. I don't feel like I have any direction. I'm putting on all this weight. I, uh, I dropped out of law school. I disappointed my dad because that was his first. He was like, who is this child who's dropping out of law school? Uh. And so that was his first kind of um, 
something's wrong with her. Mm-hmm. And then I had told I had gone to this psychiatrist and he said, why don't you quit drinking for 30 days and just see if there's a correlation between your problems and your drinking. Hmm. And so um, I did it for all 28 of the 30 days. <laughs> what happened on day 28? Oh, we had champagne at La Strada, <laughs> this, this uh, joint we used to go on Sunday. But, um, but it, within that 30 days of being on a pink cloud, um, I enrolled back in law school and I, um, I, I just decided I was happy and I was going to, I still didn't realize that alcohol had been what was holding me back. But so I went back to law school. Did it occur to you at the end of that period of time that things had gotten better and that you maybe ought to stay stopped? No. So the idea was get through the 30 days so that you can continue drinking. I guess I thought I wasn't an alcoholic. I'm like, look, I, but I, I stay sober yeah, 28. Yeah, must mean I, you're not an alcoholic. I would go out to the bars with all my friends still, and I remember chugging like 10 O'Douls, you know, those like non-alcoholic beer. Uh Anyway, crazy. I mean, (laughs) but so I enrolled back in law school and, um, you know, I was, but I was more serious this time and kind of trying to drink on the weekends Mm -hmm. and and really focus. And then um, I had a fun weekend and uh, and I got pregnant. (laughs) So, and then I got married and then I started having like, so... That changed my trajectory like completely because now I'm in school and I can't drink because I'm pregnant and um, and that those were the only times I could really stay sober up until you and know that my, was law school that you got pregnant. that was when I was in law, in law school, school yeah so I had both my girls in law school so there's there's a new man involved in these two pregnancies yes oh. this is my uh, my girl's dad Philip he's great okay cool. yeah I got God sent me him and he and I love him and his family I love his new wife and I he was a part of my collateral damage I feel mm-hmm. like but man what a gift that Philip was is my girl's dad it's just I, I something was right with all that alcoholism so I got, got something right and that was that was Philip you guys got married so we got married and um, and we had both our girls and while I was in school I had my second during spring break and then I graduated and then I took the bar in July so all that time, I guess, to be said is I was so busy with either being pregnant or studying that my drinking was almost like a sabbatical a little a little bit because I, I did still have bad weekends here and there, you know, where I'd, I'd binge and then be ashamed or something would happen, you know, but but I but it wasn't I wasn't drinking daily. Did you lay off the sauce while you were pregnant? Yes, yes. I might have had a glass of wine here and there, like towards the end of my pregnancies, but I was very, I, I felt like I was able to control it then because it was for someone else. For me, I would destroy myself all day long. But So for a budding alcoholic, what you just described is absolutely phenomenal. To be able to stay in school, graduate, take the bar, raise two babies during that period of time, and still be able to drink once things got back on track. Well, and I mean, I had a lot of, a lot of support. I had a, a great nanny, and Philip was a super dad. Mm. My parents were always around. I mean, I, I, I don't want to call them enablers, but you know, I, they they helped me do all that sincerely. I mean, put the alcohol aside. I mean, I couldn't have done that even on my best sober day alone. Yeah. So it was it was all of us a village like to get through all that. Yeah, that's different than some of the stories. And I know you've listened to some of these interviews. Uh, some of the stories, it gets to that point where she has two children and 
but then the husband leaves, and then she has to drop out of school, and then she can't work, and he's not paying child support. Sometimes the same situation produces completely divergent outcomes. Mm -hmm. It sounds like yours was one that allowed you to be able to weather that particular part of your life. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my parents were really supportive, and I just, I don't know, probably we had the means. I mean, I, I do think the financial part of it helped, like, keep the train on the tracks a little bit. And so it becomes enabling after a while. For sure, right? for sure. What, at what point did you notice that you were starting to drink again? Um, so I had a clerkship uh, with a judge, and um, and I just remember going to that job, and I don't understand this, I'm not good enough. I thought I was starting to drink wine at night, and we just bought our first home, and, and I thought, I told her, I said, I can't even do this part-time, so I'm gonna quit my job and go be a full-time mom. And um, because I, I'm not, I didn't feel like I was doing anything 100%. Sure. I didn't feel like my, so I decided to be a stay-at-home mom. But really, for me, that's when my drinking, I could drink whenever I wanted. So, and it usually was at night. And, you know, I've tried to wait till the weekends, but then it'd be Monday. And, you know, even with disastrous consequences, I just, the days got closer and closer together how long I was. But I, I always thought, well, if I just go have a bender, and then I'll sleep off the next night and then I'll pay all my bills and get everything done and be super mom, you know, and do these things. And then I'll do it all over again. That's how it was for a long time, like a vicious cycle of just and oh, I just hated trying to I, I felt like I was a fake. Yeah. You know, just trying to uh, I was hung over feeling bad going to birthday parties and it was miserable. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. About the time you made the decision to become a stay-at-home mom, to what extent was alcohol and alcohol use and your alcoholism disease, talking to you in the background, looking forward to you not having to work every day and being able to be home so you could drink? Or did that never cross your mind? Oh, no, it totally. It, I think I told my uh, the judge, like, when I quit, like, I told her while I was, like, having a glass of wine. <laughs> like, I couldn't wait because I don't have to go into work tomorrow because I'm quitting my job. Yeah, it was it was a lot of it. I, I mean... You know, I could tell myself, like, oh, it's because I just want to be this. You know, I wanted to just have a break. Yeah. Like, and I wanted to be able to drink and feel hungover if I needed to and not have to report to anybody. So at this point, you're in your, you're in your early to middle 20s. This is 25 to 29, really. Okay. When I was in school. Okay. Yeah. So, so by the time you were 30, you had the two little girls. How old mm -hmm. were they by that point? Four and two. Okay. Did your drinking ever interfere in your mothering duties with those little girls? 
I want to say no only because Philip was such a great dad and he kind of picked up my slack. Yeah. Because, for instance, if I would drink wine at night and get them to bed, he would go to bed and I might drink all night or leave and go out to who knows mm. where and sometimes not come home. But he was always there. What did he think of your drinking? Uh, he, he didn't understand it and he didn't know how to help me quit. He would say, why don't you just have a couple, then go to bed? Like, it's okay that you're having a drink or two, but um, just go to bed. And I could never. He didn't get it, did he? Mm-mm. And even when we dated, uh, we had dated another period when I, uh, bef- uh, for a little while when I was in my early 20s. And he, had, he remembered when I didn't wake up and, uh, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be late for work. And, and he said he knew back then that I was having a problem with it. But I mean, I guess he saw me, he saw me shape up some of the time and, and it just got progressively worse, you know. Was that a topic that could or could not be discussed in your home? It could once I started. I think I need help. Uh-huh. Like, and so I would be open with him about it. I'm pretty open yeah. and, um, about things. But, and then um, and he kind of was like, yeah, I'll give it a try. But I don't think he was ready to quit drinking. We just, we didn't know enough about it. I don't think either one of us, what AA was. And yeah. so, and then I told him, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to check myself into this place called, you know, I had all these ideas and everybody was like, you need to do all that. So the first time everybody was like, why are you going to such extremes and going to, and I thought this is what I need. I need this education. I'm going to get this y'all. And I, um, I kept relapsing. And then, then finally he was on board and he was like, yeah, you need to go away, Joni, go away, focus on this and I'll take care of the girls. And so you, you've just mentioned two treatment centers mm-hmm. that you went to and I always anonymize them. You said you kept re- relapsing. Did you keep going back to the same treatment center? Because I know the places you're talking about, if you relapse, you're allowed back a certain number of times. What was your experience with that? Well, the, the first one, I definitely relapsed after, and I did kind of the Saturday programs, and, and then I went off um, to another one, more of a long-term stay. And uh-huh. Through insurance, I figured out a way that I could. I went three, a total of three times, but only to two treatment centers. But it was because insurance, I figured out if, because I had relapsed within a certain amount of time, insurance still covered. So one, I got a freebie. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going back because I, I really was determined to fix this problem. But I just didn't know all, all what everybody did to get sober, just how much it wasn't just the rehab. It was it's the daily work. It's the surrender. It's the acceptance. It's, you know, the reaching out to people, the helping others. There was just so much more that I, I wasn't thinking. I thought I thought it was kind of like a pill. You, rehab was like a pill you swallow and you'll get it. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, what I've noticed about people who've gone to rehab is that there's a sense of bringing your problem in laying it on the table and say, now fix this, and yet wanting to not have to be involved in the actual process of doing it. What was your experience like with that, with regard to that? Well, I mean, I loved it. Maybe it's just because oh. I love to talk, and I, and I was trying to figure out why I was so fucked up. <laughs> and so I just told them everything, and, and they, I've, I had some, a lot of uh, light bulbs go off. I, I really enjoyed rehab, and I was trying to figure out what made me drink. I, I needed all the education. Like I told you, I like to study and le- like to learn, so I wanted to know, you know, from from a biological approach to, I mean, I, I just was eager to understand. Was there the thought that an intellectual pursuit of the truth and the more knowledge would keep you sober? Yes, 
I thought that. What was the handoff like between the first treatment center that you went to, because I know they do have AA meetings that come in, and the other one you talked about, they too are 12-step oriented once they're ready to release. But what was the actual handoff like for you when you got out of treatment the first time? Did you immediately go to AA, or did you feel like, I've done it, I'm through, I can move on? What was your approach? Somewhere in the middle. I think when I got out, the first time I got out of treatment, I I was thrown right back into my small children and being a stay-at-home mom. And I do think it's harder unless you have help and plan out everything and do everything you're supposed to. I was frazzled. I I stopped doing the work. I got busy. And then I went back to drinking. Plus, I I, I don't know that I was ready to accept it. Oh, and I filed for divorce because I thought that would be a good idea through all before I got completely sober. Had he been giving you not only the financial support, but had he been giving you what you needed all along, or was there something missing there that that created an environment that you needed to get a divorce? I, I've always been kind of restless, and Philip and I we dated on and off and had a shotgun wedding. Uh-huh. So throughout all my heavy drinking, it was like I. I kind of was saying, I'm, I'm going through all these struggles, but I'm, you're going to be my first thing I blame. Like, I'll, I'm going to clear the slate. I'm going to clean the slate for, for you and for mm-hmm. me because you don't deserve to be with an alcoholic wife and who's having, you know, I wasn't a very good wife either. Uh, and I deserve a clean start. And maybe you're the reason I drink, you know, a little bit. And uh, maybe this will be easier because I'm kind of like was always a grass is always greener, you know, and like a geographic person. I'll think, well, this, if I'll do this, this will be more fun. I'll just. And so, um, like I said, Philip, Philip was collateral damage. And he. Um, Did you find any evidence for the belief that it was because of him that you were drinking? Yes. The moment our divorce, I mean, our divorce took like seven months. And the moment we signed the paperwork, I went out and it was like around my birthday time. And and I had a really bad night that night. And then I woke up the next day and I thought, now I'm divorced. I'm alone. I don't have anyone looking out for me coming home late and stuff like that. Anything could happen to me. You know, um, I have these small children and um, and here I am with the same problem that I've been having for years. Like it wasn't Philip, so I realized it quickly. That must have been a hard realization to come to. It was, and my girls were really sad because they didn't want us to be divorcing. There was a lot of, besides just trying to quit drinking, the uh, the pain and uh, identity crisis and changes. You know, just the change is very difficult. You're kind of it's a grieving process giving up alcohol. While well, I was going through the same thing, you know, what and I died completely shattered my marriage and and my girls' hearts. So it's hard to stay sober. It's hard to stay sober. There's a lot of reasons to continue to drink, even though the drink is the reason why the problems are continuing. Exactly. That's a, that's a, that's a, <laughs> a, a an enigmatic situation. So when you got, when you finally got divorced, how old were the girls? Uh, I think, I want to say six and four. Okay. So they're six and four. So They've seen and to some degree been able to understand in their limited child understanding of things what was going on. What kind of effect do you think seeing you drinking and what was going on with your husband, what kind of effect do you see that having had on them? Um, I feel like they don't remember the drinking as much because um, we've always kind of been silly and danced, but they remember the cigarette smoke, the balloons of cigarette smoke and so and it being stinky and and one of my oldest daughter does remember 
trying to wake me up. I mean, this is depressing for me to say, but like smelling of alcohol, she remembers that smell. Mm. Um, and there, there was a time she had to take my boots off. She remembers that, but if she don't re- they don't really remember. Thank the good Lord. I mean, I, well, I'm so transparent about it. Now we talk about everything, and um, you know, and they're getting to the age where there are these high school parties, and it's scary. It's uh, because I just know how loose of a leash I had, and you know, and so I, I'm trying to figure out that balance of how to they, you know, that's another story, but. How do you approach that, though? Do you consult with other women in the program who have children that have gone through that? Or what's your approach trying to influence their behavior without being overbearing? Um, I, you just reminded me that I should call some people in the program. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've, I've just talked to the other moms and, um, and tried to kind of be true to myself and tell them, you know, what, what's important for me and my home and why they need to worry about it more than others. And I mean, there's so much that goes into it, but I just, you know, uh, try to, to keep the dialogue open, but, uh, but so they know there are also going to be consequences, but, yeah. and not because I'm alcoholic, you know, I mean, it's going to, because they're underage and it just, it robbed my potential so much. I still look back and I'm like, if I wasn't drinking and all, on all those weekends and, you know, I, I could have done so much more. I mean, I'm, I'm glad where I am today, but at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I do think alcohol and drugs take a, a lot out of you and, and rob your potential. That's right. And that's the missing wish of most sober alcoholics is that the decisions that they made, the actions that they took all resulted in something that would have been so much different if only they had stopped drinking then. (laughs) So you're in your early 30s at this point. Right. You're divorced. Mm -hmm. You've got the two little girls. Mm -hmm. What's next? What's what are the next several years look like? And how close are we to the point at which you that 12, 12 years ago that you got sober for the first time? So we are at 2013. I decide that I don't need to go back to rehab. I just need to throw myself into the program. So I, and that is, and I'm getting, I decide I'm going to get really serious about it. And um, so <laughs> I'm six months sober. And one of my girlfriends I've met in the program tells me, there's this really handsome guy and at, or at a 12 at step meeting. And so mm-hmm. um, I said, okay, I'm going to go to that meeting. So anyway, I, uh, Dove into my sec my second marriage, but at the time my uh, new relationship, I wasn't quite sober. Both of us relapsed all over the place. It was messy. Mm. It was what everybody says: don't do, don't get into a relationship in your first year of sobriety. So isn't that kind of ironic? Meeting somebody while you're both sober in AA, only to have both of you kind of coming in and going out. That's got to be tough. And we were married by the time that I finally thought. You know, we fight a lot, and we have four kids under 10, and it was difficult with being in a blended family and um, mm-hmm. trying to figure out all of our emotions. And I thought the last time I drank, um, it, we had gotten so bad, I thought, I'm not going not gonna to go through another divorce um, unless I'm sober and making that decision. So I was like, I'm going to go to 90 and 90, and I did everything. So, um, and then after about staying sober nine months, I thought, this is something I'm doing for my life. I'm not doing it to decide on my marriage. Like, this is what I've needed all along. Mm-hmm. And this is like a, a gift for my life, the gift of sobriety. And, and so I just hung on and I, I haven't had a drink since. So that's that seven year ago period. So between the 12 years ago and the seven years mm-hmm. ago, what was going on in that period of time? You were... 
a good five years from 2012 to or 2011, 2016. I had gone to uh, three three times to treatment. Mm. I was in and out of AA meetings. I would pick up a chip. Uh, I would, you know, I had a year here. I had nine months here. I had seven months here, whatever, 30 days, 60 days, you know, it just, and then I would keep relapsing and it was demoralizing because, you know, there was a a part of me that really wanted it. I never woke up from a relapse and thought, I still want to continue this. I always wanted to quit. But, um, but it was sometimes felt like a train I couldn't stop when, when I wanted to drink. And you were doing AA at that time. Yes, but very, you know, it was, it was on my own program. Like, uh-huh. I mean, I had different sponsors and I would do mostly what they told me. Mm. But the truth is, is like the acceptance piece, I think, was missing in some of it. And, and I think my feelings would just get so big. And it was so uh, such a part of my life since I was 14 that I, I really had to understand that I was I needed... I, I, no one told me I was going to feel bad. Like mm. I thought all this meant that I'd be happy and joyful all the time and at peace. But mm-hmm. there, when the bad feelings would come, I just didn't know what to do with them. So, but you know, over time it was, um, I learned that, that I wasn't going to feel great all the time and it was okay. And that mm-hmm. sobriety wasn't, you know, it was going to get different, not always get better. Right? right. But I had all these signs. I mean, I would, I would say a prayer. I'm, I'm going to drink tonight, God. And um, if if I'm a, really an alcoholic and need to be doing this, give me, you know, just a couple signs. You know, nothing too bad. Like I would like not being able to get the cork out of the bottle, yeah, something like something that. Something like that. <laughs> and literally like ten signs. I'd lose my purse. My car would be, you know, whatever. I mean, I could count all these things. Another thing that would happen was, it's just why I know it, this is such a blessing, is that there were times when I'd just be about to relapse and I'd be in the cashier's line at Randall's or at CVS buying my cheap wine. And mm-hmm. um, someone from AA would be like, hey, Joni. And I'd be like, oh, my <laughs> gosh. Like, are you kidding me? I just want to go home and drink my wine. And uh, that happened at CVS. And then another time, I bought all these bottles of wine. And I put them in my trunk, opened the trunk when I got out to my house, couldn't wait to drink my wine. It just crashed, you know, rolled out of my trunk, crashed on my driveway. So I just, I feel like it was like God telling me, like, this has got to stop. You've got to do something different. And um, but the feelings that I hated myself every time I drank towards the end. I mean, I mean, I didn't want to. I wasn't going to kill myself, but the feelings were so. You know, I I prayed. I wish I would wake up dead, mm. because I just hated. I hated everything about my the way I was living. That must have been tough. Yeah, it was just this. And then it was like fence climbing during that purgatory period, five years. It was, you know, I had one foot in AA and one foot out. I didn't really belong anywhere anymore. You know, at least when I was just drinking, it was like, you know, part of the alcoholic group or part of the drinking group. And then, but, you know, because I so wanted to be here, but I kind of still wanted to be here, I just felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And so finally I thought, I've got to pick a team. It's either this and death or, you know, or institutions or, or to hop on this like sobriety train. And I also lost a friend during my sobriety. One of my closest friends died at nine months into my sobriety um, this, this last seven years. And that was a real turning point also. What was happening with regard to the relationships you were having early on in AA that wasn't sufficient to make you want to stay stopped? I wouldn't put it on the people. There were people were lovely and wonderful. I mean, occasionally, like, you're not going to get along with everybody in every group. Um, 
you know, and there were some things that drove me away. You know, when you're trying to get sober and uh, someone hits on you, like, that's not good. That was a couple times, like, it didn't happen often, but, you know, that I would just be like, oh, you know, I'm really trying to focus on this. And so, um, but the women were lovely and I made some wonderful friends and they would, uh, you know, oftentimes take me, you know, uh, more times than not, they would say, come on back. We don't shoot our wounded. Um, I just wish, like I said, I would have known that the feelings are just don't always stay peaceful and pink cloud. You know, you're going to and life's going to show up. And um, I had a sponsor said that that one said, like, don't drink no matter F and what. And I love that because like even today, too, I try to use that because I'm like, it's so true. You know, you just if if you don't do anything right all day, if you just um, don't drink, that has to be you know, your proudest moment if it's just to go to bed sober, even if everything else goes dead wrong. But um, well, it sounds like during this five year period, you were in and out, just in and out. Did that happen a lot? Did you pick up a lot of desire chips? Yes. In fact, that's why I feel like so comfortable maybe in this program, because I don't even know that I specifically have a home group. I tried to go around to hide my chips, but I made friends all over Houston in these different groups. So once I finally got sober, I feel like I know a lot of people, but everybody welcome me in. Um, and, you know, I had a friend call me the little engine that could because <laughs> she was like, I just, I'm so sorry you keep relapsing. And I was like, but I wouldn't give up. Maybe it was because my Christian foundation or, or something that I felt like I'm forgiven. I can have a clean start. I can start over. And um, I love the people in AA. They weren't judgmental. And we laughed about all of our bad behavior and, and knew that we could start over and become better people. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it wasn't the people that made me go back out, you know, they were lovely and wonderful. Mm -hmm. It was my own, you know, I don't want to say psychosis, but my, my, yeah, yeah, I wanted to drink. I, (laughs) I was like, no other feeling compares to this, like, um, this completely just checking out, like, and numbing all sorts of, I mean, I've, I've had a surgery since, and I'm like, I think I'm the only person who looks forward to surgery, probably more, you know, because I'm like that, when that anesthesia, you know, knocks you out, I like to be completely knocked out because I don't think or something. I've had the same thing occur during my sobriety, knowing that I was getting general anesthetic and not so much looking forward to it, but knowing what it was going to do yeah. and not being too bothered by that because you don't have an alternative. When they're going to do back surgery, you are either under or you they won't do right. it. So you've got no choices there. But what you're talking about is that the people saw the potential in you, the little engine that could. <laughs> they knew that if you stuck around long enough that sooner or later you'd get it. Can you talk to me about sponsorship and what importance that might have played in your finally getting sober seven years ago? I've had amazing sponsors. They kept my secrets. They worked the steps with me. They let me call them as much as possible. And when you slipped, what was their response? They never fired me. They let they let me continue to work with them. And, but I think they let, left it up to me a lot of times to, mm-hmm. to be the one, you know, you need to pick up the phone and call when something like, because a lot of times when I'd want to drink before a relapse, uh, I wouldn't call. Like the feelings had already built up so much. That, and and that, was, that was one of my traps is that I would not go to a meeting when the feelings were starting to come. And I, I wouldn't call somebody 
during that time. I call them any other time when I felt like mm-hmm. I was on, you know, but when the bad feelings, I just, no, I don't want to call. I didn't want them to talk me out of it. I was going to mm. do what I wanted to do. You know, people felt sorry for me because uh, why didn't you call? Why didn't you? But it was just a part of my story. I was not completely ready. I thought I was. Mm. And I remember a sponsor said, are you ready? Do you never want to drink again? I'm like, I think so. Because I always wanted it, but I just, I didn't have the willingness to do everything and to just deal with the feelings. And So somewhere that came true for you. Yes. I finally had to feel so sick of myself and my behavior that I was willing to do literally everything. So tell me about the final days leading up to that last sobriety date of yours. I had had a year of sobriety and um, something really upset me and I drank. And then I was having a hard time getting back on the wagon, even though I was kind of trying. So I thought I had planned this. I was like, I'm going to get my mom and sister in town. Those are going to be my babysitters to look out for my girls. And I'm going to order food so I don't catch anything on fire in the kitchen. I mean, I had all these plans. You know, I was going to arrange for some fun with my kids with this babysitter's going to come. I mean, I had, I was trying to plan out all this stuff. And that was going to be my last time I was not, maybe not last time. I didn't think it was, I didn't know. I had gotten some wine and, you know, everybody showed up and, and I drank on my back porch like I did. And I was not going to leave. And husband number two was hunting at the time. So I thought he's not going to, you know, give me a hard time about this. And at some point I let uh, everybody, everybody's taken care of. And I let the door open for the delivery to bring our food. And uh, the dog got out, lost the dog. (laughs) I know. So I thought, oh, my gosh. Uh, And it was his dog. So um, I was on foot looking around for this dog drunk in my neighborhood. And I had run into a couple neighbors. And so we found the dog. But by the end of the night, I was in this person's house that had found the dog and like, and I just had a lot of shame. And, my, and then my mom and the sisters were like, it was pretty bad. Like you like crawled to the bed. And I thought, man, I just can't. I just can't beat this. I can't. I've tried everything for this to mm-hmm. be okay, you know, and to take care of. And so I thought I just I surrendered or something. I think I just finally was desperate enough. But it was in my soul, you know. It wasn't like because I'd been arrested. I, you know, had failed everything, you know, made tons of mistakes. But it, for some reason, it was that night of, I mean, that next day of just feeling totally beaten down. So would you call that feeling of being totally beaten down and that realization of what had been going on, were those your moment of clarity or your turning point for you? Um, Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Like this was such a slow process for me. I mean, I'm amazed when these people walk walk in and it's their last time to drink and, you know, pick up a chip and say, I'm done. Because for me, I just wrestled with it so much. And I, I felt like, I've graduated this, I've done this, and, you know, I'm a good person, and this and that, and I, you know, I'll do everything, and I, I just, I don't know, I, it was something that needed to take place, that's why I so believe it was, you know, God finally gave me this, the gift of desperation, maybe, or the, the surrender, I don't know, because, you know, a lot of people don't ever quit, and, and th- I mean, I feel like I was, this is such a gift to be able to go, I mean, I was always looking for purpose, and who knew that what I thought was such a curse was going to be such a blessing? Did you get a sense, a sense of finality there when it was that you came in this time that at last you would be able to do this? Or did it still seem a little elusive to you? No, uh, I did not. 
because I was so scared of it and my own tricks mm. I would play on myself. I, I didn't trust at all that this was necessarily the last time. And still to this day, I have a real healthy fear of it because I'm like, I don't know. I could get sad enough. I could get hungry enough, lonely enough. What I mean, you know, it scares me because um, it, it is a disease of the mind, I think, that tricks you into, you know, I've read the big book several times and I don't know that. I, I mean, I never say never, but I, I never want to go back. You know, obviously, this is um, something I, I love being sober. I don't want to. So having that realization that that's what awaits you if you're if you're not vigilant about your program. What sort of things are you doing on a daily basis to keep that feeling at bay? I read a prayer and meditation mm. every morning, and um, I definitely talk to at least one sober person, um, whether it's you know an old friend mm-hmm. or a newcomer. Um, you know, I serve on the board. Of, I um, go to meetings. I need to call my sponsor. That's what I need to do more of. I was just thinking, I read material all the time. I mean, I, because of this program, I, it's deepened my faith so much that I've gone back to my um, my roots and, and uh, Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so I do a lot of work there. So, um, But I just try to do everything. Everything that I started doing in the beginning, the five things, right? Like read mm-hmm. the literature, call your sponsor, meetings, prayer meditation, help others. Yeah, that's right. But, but I wasn't, after nine months, that first time of this seven years, I, I had bottle two bottles of wine and some cigarettes in the back of my trunk taking my girls to Galveston. So I would go to Galveston because I would know I'd have somebody to look out for my kids because I didn't want anything to happen to them while I was drinking. I always had all these plans. So you planned to drink nine, nine months, months in. Nine months in. Yeah. You go down there in your mind, you know you're going to be drinking and blowing nine months of sobriety. Yes. What was going through your mind about that? I mean, um, I was on the road and I had this plan and I, I said a prayer and I'm like, why do I find myself here again? And I like, please, I, I don't really want to be doing this. Like if you can help. I had mm-hmm. told my my oldest daughter kind of understood. And I told her, I was like, I think, well, you know, mommy and I are going to this. My, my mom, we're going to have a glass of wine. And and my daughter goes, please don't don't drink wine, uh-huh. mommy. I was sorry, I'm at a ball. Um, yeah. So I was like, and in that point on, I didn't, I, I threw those bottles away and I didn't drink. And so well, I talk yeah. about God working through other people. Right. I know. Yeah. And then, like I said, my, one of my best friends ever, we were, we just ran together since we were about eight years old and, um, and she passed away of pancreatitis and like, and we had to go through all that stuff with her. And so, I just had all these different turning points of like, I've got to keep going. Like this is, you can't do this. I mean, so I went through another divorce. To this day, I know that the pain I've, I will experience and have experienced since I've been sober, n- nothing will make it worse than drinking. Becoming sober and you know all the f- connections mm-hmm. and friendships I made has made my life so rich and purposeful and um, my spirituality is just everything to me. I'm like, why would I want to go back and make whatever I got going on today worse? Like people are proud of me now, you know, I'm proud of myself. You know, it's something that, like I said, I thought was a curse at first and has been just life changing. You know, I've seen you, we've known each other because we served on that same board. I never knew the depths to which you had gone to get sober. And it's just fascinating, the story to me, to be able to hear you say it in real time. It sounds to me like you had the spiritual awakening somewhere along the way. I want to ask you, if you compared your spiritual condition 
prior to getting sober this last time, and let's say in the midst of being sober of the years that you've had, the seven years, comparing then to now spiritually, what would you say? I think I, uh, I found God in all of this. I mean, I remember first AA meeting 2011, and everybody saying the Lord's Prayer. I just bawled. I mean, I cried. I just felt it's just so humbling to walk into this room and find all these amazing people that are willing to take me in and, and realize that we're, I guess I always felt like God was there and that I was forgiven and that I could have, if I wanted this and if I worked hard and hard enough and met God halfway that he would deliver me from this. But I, I think I weaved in the 12 steps. You know, I think it's the people in those, the rooms are God's hands and feet. I mean, I always say that probably in every share I say that because I really believe just there's so many people help me and um, and I just I'm so grateful for everything in my life and I could be at the worst place and still find reasons to be grateful because I'm not back there. My God was alcohol. Alcohol I used to cope for everything. Happy times, sad times, mundane times. And I didn't realize that, yes, it was a coping mechanism, but, you know, I believed in it just like, I mean, it was my God. And so when I walked into the rooms, I thought this, you know, this has completely, you know, I mean, not almost destroyed my life completely. And, um, and now I'm going to go back to what I I knew growing up that was, you know, something I already believed in. And I, I felt, oh my gosh, like it was, it was eye opening. And, um, so, and I feel like I've had a lot of spiritual moments like since. That's a really special feeling too, isn't it? Have you had the opportunity to sponsor some women along the way? Yes, not very many. What's that experience been like for you while you've been doing it? I, I love it. I mean, I really like talking to people and sharing my experience. I don't sponsor. Maybe it's because I'm I, I'm a regular and about going to meetings because of my schedule. Through my work at that organization and sharing the lunch and sharing my story, uh, people find me. I'm very open about it. I I, I will tell anybody. Um, I'm in recovery. I don't drink anymore. If you, you, you know, and people find me. So I, while I, I haven't taken anybody through the steps in a long time. I mean, I feel like I get phone calls and emails all the time. So when, and I'll meet people at meetings and just whatever they want me to do. But that's a good sign of a program well worked when people feel comfortable reaching out to you for the help that they need. I saw your opportunity to share your story when you helped co-chair that event that you and I are referring to. I had the opportunity to do that a number of years before then. Oh. There, w- there weren't very many dry eyes in the room when you, when you shared your story, and, and I understand now oh. why, uh, even though I knew it at the time. We're gonna wrap up here, but one of those questions I want to ask you, I don't know that I've ever really asked it in this way, but if you were sponsoring a woman right now who was working their program the way you're working it and was doing the kind of things that you were doing in the program, what sort of things would you suggest to that person to do differently or more of or less of? Oh, gosh, such a fully loaded. I'm With my brain, oh, man, I was yeah. so stubborn. In what ways? Um, well, I, I was skeptical of people a little bit telling me what to do. Really? Yes, because they would say certain things like, if you don't do this, you're not going to stay sober. But, it, it, you know, it would be like one minute detail, not uh-huh. the whole. So, I mean, people are still people, right? So um, I guess I would just tell them to trust the process. You're not going to relate to everybody. 
Um, and it's just like a bunch of people thrown in a room. You're not going to be everyone's best friends, different personalities, but l- listen for the similarities. Things might get worse before mm-hmm. they get better. You know, you're going to have to endure some feelings and do what they say. Um, go after the people that you believe you want to be like, because that's how they, they told me to find my sponsor. That if you want what they have, do what they do and, and find your sponsor that way. Do you want what they have? And I, I did. I, I walked in those rooms and the laughter, I mean, and the friendships. I thought these are real deep connections. And I love how I, I don't, it's hard for me actually to relate outside right. of AA sometimes because people are so superficial. I'm like, let's be vulnerable. Let me tell me about something real. Let's say you met a newcomer in the program and you had one shot at them to say something that might make an impact on whether they came back or not. You had 30 seconds or a minute to say something to them, knowing that you might or might not ever see them again, and they're brand new, what would you tell them? Oh gosh, that's 30 seconds to, I'll never see them again. Uh, I loved when someone said, you never have to drink again. Like I said, trust the process. Um, I think to me, they gotta want it. I mean, I'm not, I can't do the work for you. I can't, like, no one could do it for me. I had to want it and accept it and surrender to this, uh, to this deal. And so um, you mm-hmm. can do it. Believe mm-hmm. in yourself. I'll believe, I mm-hmm. believe in you. That's a really loving thing to say to somebody you don't even know is I believe in you and you've just met them. You know, to me, that shows maturity in, this, in, in sobriety when someone can say that eyeball to eyeball to someone else and say, I don't know you, but I'll do whatever is necessary to help you. For sure. I mean, where else do you find that kind of thing? Everything else has strings attached to it, doesn't it? I know. It's amazing. I, it is true. And it is amazing what people will do for one another in this program. Yeah, I love I it. too. And I love getting to know you better. You too, Howard. I see your earnest desire to help other people, and I see it in the meetings that you and I go to together. And it's an admirable quality and something that I think we can all be grateful for, that there's a woman there who is willing to do what she does for people. And if I ever run across a woman who needs another woman in the program to talk to, can I give her your number? Of course, of course. Yes, I would love that. Good. Good. That's, that, that's a good sign. That's a good thing to say, too. I, I want to say that I honor and respect your sobriety and that I love you and you're a good person, a good friend. I love you, too. You have been around since my very first meeting. I just I've never forgotten you. Thanks, Joni. Thank you for having me. This was this is wonderful. It's where God wanted us both to be today. For sure. Thank you for the opportunity. And I hope it helps somebody. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Joni M., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com to hear more than 120 episodes of AA Recovery Interviews. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. 
AA Recovery interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back.